from coast to coast to coast. You're listening to Terra Informa. You're listening to Terra Informa. It is the end of the month, which means it's, you guessed it, a time for another News Roundup episode. I'm Hannah Cunningham, and I'll be your host for the next half hour of environmental news, stories, and ideas. Before we begin this episode, we would like to acknowledge that this episode was produced in Treaty 6 territory, in Meskwitsiwaskaigan, Beaver Hills House, or so-called Edmonton. We are broadcasting from unrecognized Papas Chase Cree territory. The Papas Chase Cree were displaced following consistent efforts from officials like Frank Oliver to discredit the legitimacy of their treaty right to this territory and to reserve number 136, now South Edmonton. Not confined to history, this region is also the present homelands of many first people who build their lives here, pursue livelihoods, and gather together, including Cree, Métis, Blackfoot, and Dene. Wherever you're listening from, we ask you to consider whose version of history informs your understanding of the land you are on. This week, we are catching you up on all of the environmental news headlines that you might have missed during the month of April. There were a lot of headlines this month. Before we dive into some of our longer news stories, here is a quick rundown of some of the standout headlines from this month. You may have listened to our past episodes dedicated to the Canadian Energy Centre, aka the Alberta War Room, that was born from a campaign promise of Alberta Premier Jason Kenney's to stop the smear campaign that supposed foreign-funded environmental groups were waging on the Alberta oil sands. Well, Jason Kenney has now filed his defence in a defamation lawsuit brought against him by environmental groups over his remarks on the release of the Allen Inquiry. The environmental groups, including Environmental Defense, West Coast Environmental Law, Stand Earth, and the Western Canada Wilderness Committee, say that Kenny defamed them by twisting the words of the Inquiry Commissioner's findings. Kenny's defense team says that there is no defamation because his remarks don't identify any of the groups that brought on the lawsuit. The Government of Canada has released its 2030 Emissions Reduction Plan, titled Canada's Next Steps for Clean Air and a Strong Economy. This plan includes a sector-by-sector approach to help Canada reach its goal of cutting emissions by 40% below 2005 levels by 2030, and to put the country on track to its goal of achieving net zero emissions by 2050. The 2030 Emissions Reductions Plan includes $9.1 billion in new investments to cut pollution and grow the economy. Such investments include changing infrastructure and providing financial support to make it easier for Canadians to switch to electric vehicles, greening Canada's homes and buildings, helping industries adopt clean tech and transition to net zero emissions, developing a regulated clean energy standard, reducing oil and gas emissions, $1 billion for expanding programs to help farmers adopt more sustainable practices and energy-efficient technologies, $2.2 billion to expand the Low Carbon Economy Fund to support projects, and investments into carbon capture and storage.
the annual maple syrup season in Michigan may shift to earlier in the year by weeks or even months as the climate changes. The number of days that sap flows may shorten as well. The maple sugaring season happens during the end of winter when maple trees begin producing flowing sap that can be tapped, collected, and boiled down to make syrup. Over the next decade, Michigan's maple syrup season averaged about 29 days, producing an average of 157,000 gallons of syrup. Wind and ice storms, which may be more prevalent due to climate change and unpredictable weather patterns, could result in damaged sugar bushes as well. At the end of March, an ice shelf the size of New York City collapsed in East Antarctica, an area that was previously thought to be stable. This collapse occurred at the beginning of an unprecedented warm spell where temperatures in Antarctica were more than 40 degrees Celsius above the normal temperature in some locations. According to ice scientists, they have never seen this happen at this part of the continent. An ice scientist from the University of Minnesota stated that, quote, the issue isn't the amount of ice lost in this collapse, that is negligible, it's more about where it happened, end quote. Now, for our first in-depth segment, here's Elizabeth Dowdell talking about how climate change has disrupted egg-laying patterns for birds. This past week, I've been sharing the birdcast migration alerts from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology on my social media. The data follows birds as they make their way north across eastern and central North America, traveling from their winter homes in the south. And they're not even retired. Birdcast also reminds people about the impacts of light pollution on bird migration. Not only are these birds traveling thousands of kilometers using innate navigation routes, but suddenly there's a subdivision full of blinding lights where there used to be a good rest spot. Wah! Cue crash sound effects. It's probably not that dramatic, but light pollution is a major impact humans have on birds, especially during travel. Actually, it is that dramatic. Hundreds of millions of birds die every year because of building collisions, and migration is a long haul. The point of sharing this birdcast story is that life is hard on birds. Their migration is an amazing natural phenomenon just like their existence. Like, remember the dinosaurs? Birds should be celebrated and protected. So, bad news listeners, because another new challenge to successful bird life on Earth is... Drumroll please! Anthropogenic climate change! Cue the sad organ music. A recent press release from Chicago's Field Museum, technically it was March 25th, explains how birds are laying their eggs earlier in the year, and this behavior can be linked to climate change. By the numbers, about one-third of birds are laying their eggs about 25 days earlier. What this means for birds is not entirely clear, but egg-laying and chick-growing is energetically expensive. 
That means you need a lot of bugs to feed yourself and your babies. If insect population or other food sources haven't kept pace with bird egg laying, there will be new competition between birds for resources. So how did curator of birds at the Field Museum and the study's lead author, John Bates, come to these findings? Well, he needed some help. The data for this study came from three different sets of observations made by different collectors over three different time periods for different types of nesting birds all across Chicago. Bill Strausberger, also with the Field Museum and the Morton Arboretum, shared egg data, and so did Chris Whalen with the University of Illinois at Chicago. Mason Fedino from the Lincoln Park Zoo shared modeling information. All of these researchers, and probably some researchers in training, were needed to make this new science knowledge happen. And it might not have been perfect, but once the team had egg data, they could use some magical mathematical modeling to fill in the blanks. No actual magic is used, it's just a prediction that can be made stronger by adding more data points. So with this real and model egg data set, the team could now reference against temperature data, testing their temperature early egg laying hypothesis. But wait, there's missing temperature data. No sweat. The team found CO2 measures, including from ice cores, and another magical model to use CO2 as a proxy for temperature. And that's it. 100 years of real and modeled egg data, plus 100 years real and CO2 proxy temperature data, plus a lot of testing using mathematical models on a computer, equals confidence in your findings about the real world. Until a new set of rigorously tested data shakes things up. That's science, eh? What Bates, the lead author, stressed in this press release was the valuable modeling research that can be done with the 5,000 or so eggs in collections in the USA's museums. This information can tell us about past trends so we can better predict what happens in the future as our planet keeps changing. With that good and sort of bad news, this is Elizabeth Dowdell for Terra Informa. Thanks, Elizabeth. Next up, here are your land and water defender updates from the past month. A proposed BC timber sales pest management plan that would see aerial and ground spraying of herbicides in the Fraser Valley area of British Columbia is facing criticism and pushback from Indigenous land defenders. BC Timber Sales is a government agency that manages approximately 20% of the timber that is allowed to be cut each year. The proposed five-year management plan is for the Chinook business area, which covers land in British Columbia from Squamish to Hope, which affects the territories of the Statlium, Stolo, Inklakatma, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. In this plan, certain plants, like berries that people of these nations have been picking since time immemorial, are seen as pests that get in the way of growing trees that are destined to be commercial lumber. In this plan, options for dealing with these quote-unquote pests 
range from cutting them back to airily spraying, like from a helicopter, glyphosate-based herbicides across a broad area. The name glyphosate may sound familiar to you. It is the active ingredient in some of the most widely used herbicides around the world. Roundup is a commonly known glyphosate-based herbicide, which was first sold in the 1970s by Monsanto, which is now owned by the company Bayer after a merger in 2018. In 2015, the International Agency for Research on Cancer did an assessment that found that glyphosate is, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans, end quote. When something is carcinogenic, it means that it has the potential to cause cancer. This conclusion was quickly contradicted by later studies, but there is some controversy about Monsanto reviewing the findings before publication. Some of these studies were used in 2017 when the Canadian government did a re-evaluation of glyphosate use in the country. Health Canada concluded that the herbicide is safe for use, and it currently considers that the chemical is, quote, unlikely, end quote, to pose a risk of cancer to humans. Bayer, the company that bought Monsanto, that now owns Roundup, has faced numerous lawsuits over claims that the product causes cancer. Glyphosate is used by forest companies to prevent other plants from outcompeting tree seedlings that have been planted. The plants the forestry companies are trying to get rid of will either die, or, if they don't get a full dose of the herbicide, they may survive, with glyphosate persisting in their tissues for years after the chemical is applied, according to research done by Lisa Wood, a plant biologist at the University of Northern British Columbia. The potential implications of herbicides on human health, the potential for people's berry picking locations being sprayed and destroyed, as well as the impacts of herbicides on biodiversity, are all reasons why Indigenous land defenders are calling for people to contact government officials and request that the spray be delayed, and for people to call for greater transparency in the process including easier access to online maps of where herbicides will be sprayed. According to BC's Ministry of Forests, once the pest management plan is approved, BC timber sales will have to consult with First Nations before submitting a notice of intent to treat, or to use herbicides. The notice of intent must include a map of the treatment location, an assessment of the site, and information about the kind of herbicide that will be used. However, in an article for the Narwhal, Founders of anti-herbicide groups have said that usually detailed maps are not released to the public automatically, and the public sometimes aren't provided access to specific maps at all. According to the Narwhal, as of April 11th, this proposed pest management strategy has not yet been submitted for approval to the Ministry of Environment and Climate Change Strategy, which is a required step in the process. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Terra Informa, a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, a volunteer-powered community radio station in Edmonton, Alberta. This week, we are covering the environmental news that you may have missed during the month of April. Next up, Elizabeth O'Dell is back to tell us about bounties being offered on wild boars in Alberta.
Hello, listeners. It's your reporter in the field, a 15 years younger Elizabeth Dowdell. I'm reporting live from 2009 after watching the Discovery Channel documentary, Pig Bomb. In a style of showmaking better associated with the network Shark Week, this one-hour documentary introduced me to the lurking danger of wild pigs on the North American landscape. This program detailed the impact of feral pigs on the southern United States Plains ecosystem, informing with high drama and maximum sound effects. The dire prediction at the end of this film? The pig bomb will only get bigger. 2009 Elizabeth Dowdell signing off. Thank you, 2009 Elizabeth. I wouldn't know it until April 2022, but that moment, watching Pig Bomb, prepared me for this story about Southern Alberta. The Pig Bomb has arrived. Earlier this month, the government of Alberta placed a $75 bounty on the head, or specifically the ears, of wild boar. The animals have been sighted in 28 rural municipalities and can cause harm to crops, animals, people, and the environment. This bounty applies in the county of Stetler in the province's central southeast and the municipal district of Peace in Alberta's northwest. The bounty is an effort to call an out-of-control population that has become a pest or menace depending on your rhetoric. The problem population of pigs today was originally introduced to the province in the 80s and 90s for agricultural reasons. With the loose regulations of the time, pigs escaped into what was assumed to be a hostile wilderness that would surely kill them. But now they're back! The feral pig population in Texas is a well-known environmental problem and one management case study for places like Alberta. With a population estimated in the millions, feral pigs are popular hunting in the state and tasty to eat. However, pigs are also intelligent and will learn the sound of vehicles and other common hunting equipment, making them more difficult to catch. So the pigs are back and they're getting smarter. They are cunning hams. On a serious note, a herd of wild animals of any kind can be extremely dangerous. While pig bomb might be overdramatic, if you see a wild boar or signs of one, I would avoid that situation. I don't know if a bounty or killing is a good way to manage an invasive wild population. I do think these pernicious pigs are fascinating though, and I want to know more about them now. This is 2022 Elizabeth Dowdell, reporting for Terra Informa. Thanks, Liz. Now, here's Sarah Chitsas to tell us about a particularly mischievous group of sea lions that have taken over a BC fish farm. BC fish farms made news again this month. This time because a group of sea lions infiltrated a farm near Tofino. 
According to CBC, at least two dozen sea lions were seen inside the Rant Point Farm, which is an open net pen farm for Atlantic salmon off the coast of Tofino. Rant Point Farm is owned by Cermak, which is a major player in the aquaculture industry, with fish farms in Norway and Chile, as well as Canada. The Rant Point Farm can hold as many as 500,000 Atlantic salmon at a time. Sea lions found a way to get into the pens and feast on Atlantic salmon despite exclusionary predator netting and electric fencing that are set up around the open net pens to deter such predators. As of April 12th, all of the salmon in the farm had been harvested, and so the expectation is that although sea lions may have developed a habit of visiting the farm to feast, they would not linger in the pens. Conservationists, such as those with Clayquot Action, are raising further concerns about these sea lions and fish farms. Unfortunately, this is not the first case of other marine animals getting into fish farms. According to The Guardian, in a little more than a decade, more than a hundred sea lions have reportedly drowned after getting tangled in fish farm nets, in addition to a humpback whale. These incidents draw attention to some of the potential harm the farms and their nets pose to local wildlife. Another conservation concern related to sea lions getting into Rand Point Farm is whether Atlantic salmon were able to escape the farm. Escaped Atlantic salmon can pose some risk to wild Pacific salmon populations by competing for resources. The DFO, or Fisheries and Oceans Canada, has stated that they cannot be sure either way whether Atlantic salmon were able to escape during this incident. As sea lions are intelligent creatures, it is also possible that they will now try to enter other fish farms and that this will become a repeat occurrence. As you may recall from our previous discussions of salmon farming along the coast of BC, this is happening against a backdrop of some long-standing tensions between aquaculture industry, environmentalists, and other stakeholders in Pacific salmon populations, including many coastal First Nations and other coastal communities. New research reported on by the Narwhal suggests that there is increasing resilience of sea lice, which are a parasite that are often found feeding on farmed salmon, to the chemicals used by fish farmers to eliminate the parasites. And this is also raising the stakes for fish farming licensing decisions. John Horgan, BC's Premier, sent a letter to Prime Minister Trudeau on March 10th of this year in regard to the transition away from open net pen aquaculture in BC. In this letter, Horgan urges Trudeau to ensure that if fish farm licenses are to be phased out, that there will be an appropriate transition plan to support the interests of coastal communities. This letter highlights the importance of fully engaging First Nations that will be impacted by federal licensing decisions in the process and urges for a transition plan for open net pen salmon farms to have a corresponding transition plan for First Nations and communities that rely on aquaculture economically, while also mitigating potential risks posed to wild salmon by fish farms. According to Business in Vancouver, 79 federal licenses for open net salmon farms in BC are set to expire in June of this year. The current Minister of Fisheries and Oceans, Joyce Murray, will need to decide how many, if any, of these licenses will be renewed. Incidents like the sea lions breaking into Rand Point Farm serve as a reminder of the intelligence of wild animals and the potential for unintended and unexpected environmental consequences of human industry. If you're interested in learning more about salmon, 
check out our two episodes on Pacific salmon from December 2021. This has been Sarah Chitzas, back again to talk about salmon for Terra Informa. Thanks, Sarah. And now for our final story, here's Lizzie Barron with some good news about a certain kind of tree frog in Australia. You might remember the headlines in 2019 and 2020 about the massive bushfires in Australia that burned through huge tracts of forests and bushland. These fires not only burned habitat for wildlife, but resulted in the deaths of many wild animals, including the endangered spotted tree frog. The spotted tree frog can grow up to 6 centimeters in length, has a gray to olive green color, and eats mostly insects. At the time of the fires, It was estimated that there were around 250 to 300 spotted tree frogs in the wild. The wild population was estimated to have been reduced to about 10 individuals after the fires. Why was the population of spotted tree frogs so low even before the bushfires to begin with? There seemed to be a couple of reasons. Spotted tree frogs are threatened by a disease called curimtichosis caused by the rapidly spreading amphibium chytrid fungus, according to Zoos Victoria. This disease is present in several regions of Australia and has been recorded in several tree frog colonies. This disease, in some cases, can wipe out entire populations. The presence of trout can also impact the frog populations. Rainbow trout and brown trout both occupy the same habitats that the tree frogs live in and prey on spotted tree frog tadpoles. Finally, unsurprisingly, the dredging of streams and other disturbances by humans have negative impacts on these endangered frogs. Now, it's pretty dire to have a population dwindle down to 10 individuals, but in some good news, there have been 80 new tree frogs introduced into the wild in the Australian state of New South Wales. These frogs are the successful graduates of a breeding program and are being introduced into Kosciuszko National Park, which is located in southeast Australia. Spotted tree frogs are important parts of the stream ecosystems in which they live, according to David Hunter, the Senior Threatened Species Officer of the Department of Planning and Environment in New South Wales. In some of the streams the spotted tree frog occupies, they are the only frog present, and their tadpoles consume nutrients and algae, keeping the water clean. Thanks, Lizzie. That is all the time we have for this week. I've been your host, Hannah Cunningham. Thanks for listening. A quick heads up before I go, we are taking a break for the month of May. We will still be airing old episodes while we're gone, and we will return in June with fresh ideas and episodes for you. Terra Informa is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM, and all of our content is created by a team of volunteers. Shout out to Elizabeth Dowdell, Sarah Chitzas, and Lizzie Barron for writing and recording stories this week. This episode was produced by yours truly, Hannah Cunningham. If you liked what you heard, check out our website, terrainforma.ca, for past episodes, 
or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Terra Informa. We'll catch you next week right here on Terra Informa.